1: in your mind, in your heart, in new knowledge, get a fresh new start, and Jane Netfer will bring you there. So let's talk about it when
2: well, life and die.
0: We have a blockbuster show for you today. We've got Lee Matthew Goldberg, we've got John Land, and I'm hoping we have John D. Simone and Derek McFadden, but that's okay because we got the big ones here already. And it's beautiful outside, it's 27 degrees, but who cares? So, good morning, guys. I am so excited. This is going to be fun.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me, Fran.
0: I'm so glad too, and Lee, if you have anything new coming out, make sure I get it because March is filled already. Would you believe I'm so popular it's frightening um okay, so.
3: i i I will definitely get I few stuff coming out in the spring, so i will I will get you it once we have arcs.
0: We have general question that either one of you can handle. When creating your plot, when using Flashbox and different timelines, how do you create the opening prologue to introduce the character from the past? John, you do that probably better than everybody, and Lee too. <laughs> so how do you, how do you do that?
1: Well, it starts with the plot in the present, because and, and, and instead of just explaining it, let me give you an example. With Strong mm-hmm. from the Heart, which is the most recent Caitlin Strong book. The MacGuffin is the real power behind the opioid crisis, the real enemy who is dealing in, who's running the show in Washington. So I was doing an opioid book, a conspiracy, a thriller. Okay, so it's drugs. So obviously, because my the flashback uh, sequence in the past is intrinsically connected to the the plot strand in the present. Well, now I I reverse engineer it. And in this case, what I did mm. was I asked myself, how did drug dealing in Mexico begin? Because a lot of the action mm. in Strong from the Heart jumps off from this border town called you know, Camino Pass, a very small town on the border of Texas and Mexico. There are thousands of these kind of towns up and down the Rio Grande Valley. Um, so I asked myself... No, how did drug dealing in Mexico actually start? What was the bur- how did the cartels get started? When did Mexico become a narco-traficante state? Um, so, and the reason I do this is because it's mm-hmm. always Caitlin, one of Caitlin's forebears, one of her relatives, in this case her great-grandfather. Um, so we're circa 1900, um, a little, actually a little earlier than that. And what I found, and this was the fascinating thing, and became the historical subplot, was that the Mexican drug trade started in the 1870s with the Chinese. The Chinese came to America and and crews built the railroads. They came to Mexico with poppy seeds that they had smuggled out of China. Those poppy seeds, and what they had determined, was that Mexico had the ideal climate to grow poppy, opium. Black, which of course also became black tar heroin, the first major drug that was imported or export that was brought over the border. So basically, Mm. um, what I have is a Chinese villain named Felipe Wong. That's based on a very real person. He is a real person. Mm. That's his real name. Who was a crime boss, growing huge fields of poppies in the 1870s and 1880s Mexico. The Chinese had learned from the triad, the Chinese organized crime, which has been around forever, of how you divide up territories to avoid internecine war conflict. So they they basically divvied up the country. Four or five Chinese crime bosses basically mm. divided Mexico, and that became the birth of the cartels. So when William Ray Strong, Caitlin Strong's grandfather, um, picks up the trail of Felipe Wong, um, he's doing something that is historically accurate, but he's also doing it red riding a line alongside Pancho Villa, because I always I, the fun I have in these historical threads, these historical mm. subplots. Is bringing in characters from history, and teaming them up, or making them the antagonists of Caitlin's ancestors, Caitlin Strong's ancestors, to mm. give the books an entirely new resonance and and level of suspense, because you're not dealing with one plot line in one timeline, you're dealing with two plot lines that are in two timelines that, as I said before, are intrinsically connected.
0: There you are now. You did it also with uh, yours with the ancestors. You had a frostbitten person that defrosted. That was so, that was the most clever thing I've ever had. I read
3: seriously. Oh, thank me. you. Yeah, yeah. seriously. <laughs> for my character, he's he's somebody who basically believes he was frozen um, on ice for 120 mm-hmm. years. He believes he's from um, the Alaskan Gold Rush era. Um, so for him, flashbacks are his memory kind of coming back to him. Um, and it was, a, it was mm. a really great tool to use so I could jump back and forth um, from present time mm-hmm. Alaska to the 1890s.
2: Um,
3: and, I mean, for me, I hadn't really ever written historical before, so that was a new thing. Um, but it was more coming out of the interest I had myself for that era um, and inserting it into the book that way. Um, and for my character... He, he, he starts out pretty good, but as he goes back in time and he remembers a lot of his past, he remembers some terrible things he did um, as a prospector to basically get gold. And so it starts to affect him in the present time as well um, because he, he, he doesn't like what he thinks about himself, basically.
0: Well, this is is so interesting, but when you create – I'm adding questions, by the way, because obviously Derek and John, I just emailed them and texted them and private messaged them, and I have no clue what happened.
2: Well, we'll hold down the program.
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, that's okay. Matthew and I
1: can take care of everything. We got
3: it. That's why
0: I'm not worried, because – help no i don't even worry about it This turns out to be better i can't wait to do five people on the 16th they're just gonna you know send me somewhere probably so when you decide the major plot line john or lily i mean the desire card we know how i got that by accident i'm so glad i did that that was a brilliant mistake of my part um how do you decide what to write about this is the hardest thing. We were talking about that yesterday because, actually, they they asked me to join um, the show yesterday with Vincent Dandry. And one of the questions That's that I asked friend, was, yeah. yeah, he's a riot. He's fun. And he's going to do the show in January, too, which is who knows what we're going to talk about, but we don't care. Um how do you decide the central theme of your plot? How do you decide what that character is going to be going through? Especially like Wyatt, he's he was born in 1898 and now he's in the present with Travis. How do you take even Caitlin and sometimes you did a backstory about when she was younger? So how do you decide what what that main plot is going to be because I'm trying to write my next book and I'm, you know, that's not me. I just make it up as I go along. So how do you decide what to write about so that people want to read it?
1: Well, the first thing is <clears throat> you need a MacGuffin. You, that's that's Hitchcock, the old Hitchcockian um, mm-hmm. term for what everybody <clears throat> is after. What is everyone pursuing? What is everyone – what is driving the action? And then the second question is how does that emotionally – not just plot-wise, but how does that emotionally affect the heroes, the characters that I'm writing about. Another example from Strong from the Heart. Caitlin is following the trail of the truth, as I said, behind the, what, mm. where is the real power behind the opioid crisis? Why have we been not, why have we been losing the, a war on drugs we could have been winning mm. for so long? Well, it's because people don't want us to win that war. Because there's too no. much money to be made. Yeah. Fine. Okay. Yeah. So, but how does that move us emotionally? In the opening scene of Strong from the Heart, or one of, since I have many opening scenes for each plot mm-hmm. wheel, um, one of Caitlin's surrogate sons, an 18-year-old high school senior, ODs mm. on oxycotton and almost dies. He has to be resuscitated with Narcan. So there is a personal reason why Caitlin wants to get to the bottom of this because someone she loved has been affected by it. But even that, Fran, wasn't enough. And then about 150, 200 pages in, I realized what I had to do. Caitlin, in the last book that comes before Strong from the Heart, Strong as Steel, Mm -hmm. is – Suffers a traumatic brain injury at the very end because she's too close to an explosion going off. That's what happens when you're too close to an explosion. You get a TBI, a a, a traumatic brain injury. So she's been on Vicodin for six months. She gets these terrible pounding headaches that aren't, they will not go away. And whenever she starts to feel one coming on, she pops a Vicodin. So not only is one of Caitlin's, the people, one of the people Caitlin cares about most in the world, affected by this, she herself is addicted to the very scourge
2: she's mm. trying to
1: destroy. And that creates an emotional bond, a vulnerability that, uh, that adheres her to the audience for, for multiple reasons. So the, to, the answer to your question is you need a structural core a structural concept and you also need an emotional core. But that structure and that emotion has to be connected. What Lee was saying before about his book, um, I love that notion of someone frozen or, or believing mm-hmm. they've been frozen for Thank 120 you. years because yeah, that it. opens up the same thing I'm talking about here. Mm-hmm. It opens up all the vulnerabilities. It opens up this person who is basically... A fish out of water, um, you know, and and it gets you into that same inner turmoil, that same inner conflict that I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, for me... Especially
3: with that book, um, ideas often come in like fragments. So I had heard this song by Ben Darling's side called The Ancestor, which is the title of the book. Um, and the first line in the song was, Gone, bury me. So I just imagined this man buried in ice. And then that led mm. to the next part of, of the idea of the plot. Well, if he was buried in ice, what if he was buried in ice for 120 years? And then where is it going to take place? Okay, we need a cold area. So then Alaska kind of came into the picture. And usually for me, like an ideal narrative sometimes almost a year. So it's a year of me just kind of like thinking about these characters. Um, they're slowly yeah. forming. And I wanted, I often think of my books in, in like a film sense or in like a TV sense. So I picture them as movies or I picture them as TV shows. Um, so this one in particular, there's such a rich array of supporting characters. So I I, it was very important for me to have quiet a strong chapter and you really kind of um, learn things about him as he's learning about himself. Um, but it was equally important for each of the supporting characters to have full arcs too. So there's a huge part of the book that takes place in um, a Native American reservation um, in the town. The character's there. There's the sheriff and sort of his arc. He lost his son. Um, potentially to drugs, um, and he's sort of kind of figuring out who was the one that gave him them. Um, so mm. all of these characters started to kind of form to, to create it, and each one of them is kind of going through their own, um, basically like stuck-in-time situation. Uh, so the book kind of emerged from there. Um, with my other mm. one that you read, France Desire Card, uh, it's yeah. kind of similar. I, I imagine somebody, the, the, the plot of that is um, a man, who basically is very rich and needs a liver and goes about very horrible ways to, to, to get one. Um, and it's sort of a takedown on, um, you know, anybody that could pay for whatever they want to get what they want. Um, and it kind of came about that. I, I I was talking to a doctor friend of mine who um, specialized in liver transplants, and he just mm. kind of mentioning how difficult it was sometimes for people. And then mm. I imagine somebody on wall street who needed that liver um, and winds up dealing with the black market trade to get it and organ trafficking. And the book kind of, you know, spiraled from there. Um, so oftentimes it comes to me like in fits and spurts almost.
0: Well, I think you should do a sequel to that one. Cause I want to know what he does next.
3: Um, I said it's, that already written. it's already written well, right now. I am. Uh, Maybe TMI I'm not happy with the publisher So I'm taking the series somewhere else Yeah, that's what's happening with that
0: Well I saw on Facebook That you have something coming out that's scary With Atmosphere Press
3: yeah, yeah. So it's my first sci fi book. Um it's mm. originally a short story I wrote in college, so it's been something I've been working on for about twenty years. Um and that's yeah, cool. it's a weird kind of David Lynchy sci fi robot um thrown in the mix. Um so we'll see what happens with that. now, I'm, I'm, I'm right now um sending it out for like verbs. So that's that's where I'm at with that.
0: I'm excited. So John the next question. I'm skipping over the other people that are not here. How sad. Uh, tying two or more timelines related to an issue that is prevalent in both timelines. The hardest part, because you know how many books friends read, too many. Um, the hardest part is how do you make the transition in order to make it easy for somebody like me to follow? Because sometimes, like I said yesterday, um, the other day on my show, I look, I, I read this thing, and I'm going like, what? Uh how come I'm on I'm in the present in sentence one and in the past in sentence two and in somewhere in sentence three. So how do you make the transition so that I follow it? Besides <clears> the fact that you give a, a heading to each chapel which makes life so much easier for people.
1: Yeah. It's a great question. <clears throat> and here here's how um and I, I hope this is uh, you know a, a a simple answer to a great question. I think the problem with flashbacks in a lot of books is that they they don't feel organic to the story. There is a a plot in the past and a plot in the present, but there's no connective tissue between them. What do I mean by that? that? There's a disjointed effect because the hero in the present is not aware of all the things that happened in the past. And the story in the past is told independently. And this is the key point I want to get at. The story in the past is being told independent of the story in the present. What I do is, in answer your question about how do I weave them together, Mm -hmm. it isn't what happens in the past. There's always someone will say to Caitlin, uh, Caitlin Strong, oh, you know, your great-grandfather, you know, followed up a pa- uh, an investigation in this very town. Let me tell you what happened. So what happens is it's not just a flashback stuck in at random. It's another character telling Caitlin a story. So hmm. even though it's my words, the point of view, Caitlin is listening to – a number mm-hmm. of characters fill in. Now, I get criticized for this, Fran and Lee. You'll, you'll, Lee, you'll appreciate this especially. Well, it always seems like, because it's, it is, that each character who tells her is the story knows exactly what the, where the other character left off. So, sure. obviously, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little manipulated. Sometimes she'll cue and say, what happened after, dot, dot, dot. But the ability to... Have instead of just sticking it in like a sore thumb it's information that she needs to hear and it's coming from another character's point of view directly to her so she isn't ju- so she is experiencing the flashback Caitlin Strong is at the same time the reader is experiencing the flashback mm-hmm. um, and they both have the same information and the fun lies. In tying in, this town on the the Texas-Mexico border, in -hmm. Strong from the Heart, Camino Pass, population 300, in the opening scene of the book, the prologue, everybody dies overnight within minutes, perhaps seconds of each other. The entire town is killed. Well, and basically it was my homage to the Andromeda strain the classic opening scene, especially from the movie of the Andromeda Strain, so a scene I've always wanted to write. Um, well, that same town is where Caitlin's great-grandfather shows up to pick up a prisoner to take to trial at the county seat, only to realize that all the town's children have were kidnapped the day before. Who took them from this small town that a hundred years later, or not quite a hundred years, but close, a long, a long time later, 120 years later, is mm-hmm. going to die, is going to get wiped out. And believe it or not, something directly related to the kidnapping of those children directly connected to what happens in the present that kills all 300 people. So you have, on the one hand, it, I weave it in, through the the hero's point of view. On the other hand, I tie the MacGuffin in the past directly to the MacGuffin in the present. Something those Chinese drug lords are doing in Mexico ultimately causes the deaths of the entire town of Camino Pass in 2020. And, you know, this is the fun I have in writing the books – and, and, and Lee may want to comment on this. And this is why I write them this way, because it's fun. And yeah. I have a lot of fun writing, figuring out these connections, pretty much like Lee was mentioning as I go along. I don't know how everything's going to connect when I start. I didn't know the prisoner that William Way Strong was coming to pick up in Camino Pass in the past was Pancho Villa. That occurred mm-hmm. to me after I started the book. And then you go back and say, wait a minute, Pancho Villa, when did he live? And then you you kind of reverse engineer a little bit. You move the dates around. So it's credibly possible that, yes, a Texas Ranger could have been picking up a a 19-year-old Mexican bandit. That's all he was at this time. And the fun of incorporating a Judge Roy Bean, a Pancho Villa, a J. Edgar Hoover, a John D Rockefeller, which I did, you know, in Strong, Cold, Dead. Um, the fun is in playing along with the real people, is looking into what they really did historically, and asking how could I exploit this as a subplot? Why did they do this at this point? Makes no sense. Maybe it's because somebody made them do it. Maybe because you know they were forced to do it. So I, I just have a blast. Can writing both these timelines and then connecting them. And if I'm having fun with something, and this is what I thought Lee might want to comment on as well, chances are the reader is going to have fun with it. Lee, I'm going to guess yeah. you, you had so much fun writing about that, hundred, the, the guy who thought he oh. was frozen from 120 years ago. Oh, ab- so absolutely. much you can do with that.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I say that all the time. Like, if I'm not having fun, then the reader's not having fun. I think that that's the best way to think, honestly, about writing a book. Like, if you're bored, it's going to come across in the writing as well. So I only take on projects that I'm, you know, really passionate about and that I want to write about because, you know, you're spending a lot of time writing a book. It takes a long time. I'm faster than I used to be, but it's still about six months a book. So that's a good chunk of life that you're devoting to these characters and these people that, you know, we kind of become real for those six months for you. Um, And for me, like, That one especially, like, I I also added, um, it was the first time I added, like, a historical person. Um, There was, uh, he was, like, post-Wild, Wild Wild West It was this guy named Soapy. And he was basically a bandit. And he would con people um, in, you know, all through the 1890s, basically, across America, where he would tell them that there's a coin in, you know, a bar of soap and sell it to them. And of course there would never be a coin. And then by the time they would buy it, he'd be out of there. And he made a killing kind of going up, uh, up and down the land, selling the soap. Um, so he's a character that my, he's a, a real ca- a person that my character kind of comes across at one point. And they have, um, he, he, he tries to con him as well. And it was really fun putting him in the book because it, it made it that much more real. And, you know, he was around the area at that time. Was he exactly in the place that I put him in? Probably not. Um, but it was enough kind of wink to something real that made it just fun to put in. Um, And I agree exactly what you said too, John, about sort of flashbacks. There's so many times I'll be reading a book and the character will be talking about two characters having a conversation that they were never in. So how possibly would they be able to know about that? Um, And it's almost like cheap writing Um, for the ancestor. It was really easy because there was so many things that, he would see that would evoke the memory of his past. So he meets his basically doppelganger who he believes is his great, great grandson, a man who looks exactly like him 120 years separated in time. And when he meets that man's wife, all of a sudden it triggers the memory of his own wife. And that's the first sort of flash that he remembers he was married. And then he meets that man's little boy. And all of a sudden another memory is triggered of his own little boy and kind of so on and so forth. So to have that kind of peppered out through the novel, um, it, it was doing it without sort of, you know, cheapening it. Um, you know, I just watched, it was a horrible movie, um, Hillbilly Elegy on, on Netflix.
1: And Everybody it hates jumped, that movie.
3: Oh, it's awful. Um, it jumps back and forth in, in, in time constantly. And, and the main boy's, you know, remembrance of, you know, 20 years ago. And he literally remembers a scene that he's not in. It's Amy Adams and Glenn Close's character having an argument, and he wasn't even there. Um, So it it was pointless. There was no reason why you needed to do that. And it just takes you – it sucks you right out of it immediately. Um, I mean, that movie was terrible for a lot of reasons, but, you know, primarily because um, you almost didn't need all those flashbacks. It's like overkill. It's kind of too much. I think the the challenge of a really good writer is how do you weave it in so it doesn't make the other part of the narrative suffer?
0: So I have a question, Lee. Yeah. Since I read Ancestors, and I read some of the reviews, and I think those people didn't understand the point of the book. That's all (laughs) I'm saying. Because I don't mess up ever. Now, I I met Wyatt, and uh, he goes back into the past, and I think he kills kind of like, he left his family to go find gold. I know that. He wanted to do yeah. that. I would have loved to have some of the gold too, but what can I say? So I think sort of, and he's sort of like trying to find it in the present. So Wyatt and Travis mm-hmm. form an bond, and yet you realize that they both have instability issues and fear of rejection. This comes through and yet pushes their families and their wealth. How did you create that? Because he, 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 he seems to very well in other areas seriously he did do that very well and he you're, you're getting some. very low Fran what you, can you hear me can you repeat <laughs> the
3: last part yeah you for all of a sudden you just got very low
0: oh I know my, my, my What can I this is my phone um, he had their fear and rejection issues so he comes yeah through, he get, comes through and they push aside their immediate families for wealth if this is mm-hmm. about and power, right, that he wanted. Also, I think, does he feel guilty that he left his family in the past?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, press? he as a prospector um, sort of had, you know, one thing on his mind, and that was to get the gold. He would tell himself it's to better his family. His son is sick. He wants to, you know, get the gold so he could pay for, you know, doctor visits were in the 1890s, so it's not like he could just go to, like, a city MD clinic or anything like that. Um <laughs> So in his mind, he's always doing this for the right reasons, but you know, the book is really about obsession, and that's his obsession. His obsession is not only the gold in terms of like money, but in terms of like a heroic status, which I think was very true for a lot of prospectors. You know? That was their sort of definition. It was their profession it was what defined them, really. Um, you know, and for Travis, um, he's in a kind of precarious situation too. He was laid off from the oil refineries, you know, the, the area in Alaska that they live in is sort of, you know, very isolated, very poor. There's not that much, you know, room for finding another job. Um, and he has dreams of opening a fish shack, um, you know, for the fishermen on the water. And so the gold would become a means to that. So the two men, you know, even though they may be connected, actually, because they are, um, you know, related even beyond that they have so much similarities in terms of where they're sort of at in life and and what they want. And the gold kind of then starts to blind them for everything else. You know, it becomes the pursuit and it becomes sort of, you know, the obsession for both of them. Um, You know, and in, in like any good thriller, it's not going to turn out well, basically, you know, they don't just find the gold and everything's happy. Um, So, you know, it pushes both men to kind of deal with their own, um, you know, kind of demonic obsessions and what they'll do to get what they want.
0: Yeah, I just added something. I I sit and listen to you guys, and then I write, because I have, like, you know, 10 questions for the other people that I don't know what
3: happened. They don't
1: know what they're missing. Right,
3: exactly, yeah. Like I said, John and I, we we got this covered. We we don't need them.
0: And have some fun here. So, which ancestor, you know, boy or Jack or whichever one of Caitlin's ancestors, do you think had the most powerful impact on her in the present? That's my. Favorite.
1: You know, that's a great question, and you, you've got to go. <clears throat> if you don't, if you, she's never met her great grandfather, or her grandfather, yeah. or, great-grandfather or her great grandfather, or her great great grandfather. She's never met William Ray Strong or, or Steel Dust Jack Strong. Now, she was practically raised by her grandfather because her father was on the road a lot as a Texas Ranger. So it would be either obviously her father, Jim Strong, Texas Ranger, or her grandfather, a combination of the two. Um, and, and they probably have more. Um, if I, I've never added up. I've done 11 of these, but only 11 Caitlin Strong books, but only 10 of them had a flashback thread. And I've never sat down and figured out how many each were in. I think it would be almost even probably two, 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 um, you know, maybe, maybe exactly even, but it feels like I've done more with, um, Earl and Jim, um, because it's, 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 it's closer in time, um, to what you can relate more to the 20th century. When you get into the 19th century, um, now, neither her father or grandfather were alive into the 21st century, so um, I don't have to go there. Um, you you risk, fi- you know, doing too much that not so much confuses the reader, but the reader has it has a problem relating to. So, and the further you go back in history, the history is more is more disassociated from the present. Give you an example of one of the subplots I did with Earl Strong um, you know, in Strong to the Bone. I knew I was going to do a book about modern-day Nazis. So I figured, okay, for the historical subplot, boy, I'm going to be real clever. I'm going to Google Nazis in Texas and just see what I get because I needed a historical subplot that has something to do with Nazis. Well, come to find out that... In World War II, there were 125,000 Nazi prisoner of wars, German POWs, held in Texas in 23 different POW camps. I never knew that before. So I had this wonderful historical artifact to build a historical thread around. So now I know it's World War II, 1944. That means it's got to be Earl Strong, her grandfather who shows up at one of these POW camps as a Texas Ranger after a murder is committed. One inmate kills his, three, of his four, three of his roommates or cellmates and escapes. Why? That's the jumping off point of the entire story, past and present, because that person who got away is vital to the plot that Caitlin is investigating with neo-Nazis in the present. But again, for flavor, for fun, to make the historical thread as riveting and fun to read as the present day thread as Earl strong is there who shows up, but J Edgar Hoover, why is J Edgar Hoover showing up on the grounds of a German POW camp? Why would the head of the FBI be there? So this leads to some great scenes. Between a Texas Ranger And Texas Rangers don't care They have, they respect everyone But they give deference to no one
2: And God, John, J. Edgar Hoover John Doesn't
1: impress D. Earl Strong yeah, And the D. dialogue D. Between them is so much fun uh, As you can tell From me just describing a book I wrote Four years ago right. I have fun doing this Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Well we have John D. Simone Hi how are you?
2: Hello, Hi. how are you?
0: Oh, great. Hello, Dan. He's here. Hi. <laughs>
2: are you? I'm, okay. I'm, John late, wrote, but I'm happy to be here.
0: John wrote The Road Wait. to Delano, and he uses Cesar Chavez as his ancestor in the past. So, how does the history of this town and learning about sugar relate to the story in the present? Then, John, I've got another one for you. The other,
2: John. So, the question is: the main character. One of the main characters is um, a farmer by the name of Sugar Duncan. He's in the present, yeah. uh, and how does he relate to Cesar Chavez? Um, it's it very interesting. I found Sugar's uh, story. Uh, he, he that's not his real name, in a um, a brief mention in a in a book on uh, Hispanic experiences in um, the Central Valley. And he was a grower who actually tried to uh, to change some of the the conditions of the uh, working migrants, and was run out of the valley through a series of events um, very similar to what is depicted in the book: harassing phone calls, burning crops, et cetera, et cetera. So, the the powers that be just were not interested in any type of reform. They were happy with the status quo, with the way they were treating the migrants, and that um, led later on to um, Cesar Chavez um, uh, and his movement. Um, And and that's really the history of of, um, reform in our country. You know, when um, uh, abuses continue, eventually, you know, anger bubbles up and someone reforms. The difference with Chavez is he used uh, nonviolence. So, um, and that was what was unique to his his method in uh, union organizing.
0: A lot of people disagreed with that. I know that, but you have two characters. With, that, and the ending, by the just, way, I'm not going to tell what it is. Was a box of <coughs> tissues. Seriously, um, <laughs> we had Adrian and Jack. Like, but I'm going to ask John something in a minute too about Court Wesley. I just thought of something brilliant coming out of my mind. Um, Adrian and Jack had one focus. What was it? And what? How did did Jack want? What did Jack want to accomplish when he referred back to sugar? And what did Adrian hope to accomplish with his father? Because these are well, two, different, two different threads.
2: Yes. The, yeah. Uh, Jack is the son of uh, Sugar Duncan, so he's the son of a grower. Uh, lives on a different side of town, and Adrian is the son of a um, farm worker. His father would be. Uh, what would be called a, um, you know, a supervisor. In other words, he, um, or a team captain. He works, um, uh, you know, he would run a crew for for the owner. Um, um, the difference is, is is, what I was able to do in the book was bring them together to have them uh, um, experience shared interest. And the shared interest, the they're both high school students. They're both uh, excellent baseball players and they both have a vision of the American dream, you know, going on and and playing professional sports. Um, You know, kids have those dreams and whatever those dreams are in high school, um, Mm -hmm. college for them, it's, it's, you know, getting out of the, the, the farm town the the small environment that they've grown up and, um, Uh, Moving on to the big city, they're both being recruited by major universities, that type of thing. So, uh, but it's their past that draws them back into the story. You know, Adrian's connection with his father, with the, um, uh, Adrian's father is a a leader among the farm workers uh, in the strike. Jack, um, on his side of the family, his father uh, has disappeared. His father has been killed, and he doesn't know why. Um, so they have common interests but, but diverging interests and, um, and that's really the tension of the story.
0: Well I have a question for John Land then I have a question for all of you' I'm getting you know or something. John Wesley is one of my favorite characters. you know that Besides. I do. And tell me something. Court Wesley has somebody that nobody really sees but he sees. And mm-hmm. you, how did you meet him? Is he somebody from the past, too? So <clears throat> Kate has Guillermo, has and he keeps her straight, because somebody's got to do something, because nobody, she doesn't listen to anybody. And Court Wesley has this pause, this goes. So how did you incorporate him? Because he sort of fits in the story, and then when he comes out, I go, yay, finally, somebody's going to tell him what he's supposed to do. So he's, how did he meet him, and what what happened? <laughs> you know,
1: the, <clears throat> The thing about recurring series where you're doing three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten, in my case, eleven books in the Caitlin Strong series, Jack Reacher's up to 22 now. Um, And the Mm. amazing thing about Jack Reacher is 22 books and there are no recurring characters. There are a couple that have come back once or twice, but nobody comes back in every book. I have five or six characters. Who recur in every single book? It's like a TV epi- It's like a TV series, um, and there's a fam- familiarity with the characters, and you want to see them again like old friends. So you keep coming back. But the key thing with minor characters, and what amazes me, and is that you raise this question because nobody ever asked me about Leroy Epps is the name of of Court <laughs> Wesley's spirit advisor, his former cellmate in Huntsville, yeah. in prison. Who died years before and comes back either as a figment of his imagination or an actual ghost, a spirit. And I would heavily lean toward the latter, that he's really there. Um, And the reason I did that was because, first of all, it's something I believe. But secondarily, and just as important, when you have characters, you need to distinguish them, especially in a series – they need to stand out. They need to be different. Um, they need to be creative. They need to be fun. I can't tell you how many people who read the Caitlin Strong series say either – that say, say Leroy Epps is their favorite character. And he's not even there. And he's their favorite character because he comes to life. He shows up whenever his friend needs him to give him this sage advice. And he hints at things that are coming in the future But he never quite Explains it all the way um, In the same way that the Guillermo Paz The seven foot assassin character Who originally was sent Hired to kill Caitlin but becomes Her protector for the, for the rest of the books um, He has visions And you know very early in a book Thanks to Paz that something really bad is coming Because he'll get a vision Of something that's happening And he'll be doing something he wasn't doing in the last book, something different as he's pursuing his spiritual enlightenment. Uh, There are so many fun scenes. And here's the thing I tell – why I do this. It's one thing to tell a great story. That's the responsibility of every writer. But the key thing I add to that is you have to have fun telling a great story. Because if you have fun with the characters, with the subplots – with the flashbacks that we're talking about today, if you have fun, then the reader will have fun. And to me, um, my books are organized. My thrillers are like elaborate magic tricks, where you watch, where it goes on. You're watching Americans Got Talent, and there's this, this elaborate gag, this trick, this impossible illusion that goes on for ten or eleven minutes, as opposed to just saying sleeve, and boom. So I I do a longer kind of a deeper dive into how all these pieces fit together. And um, that's where the fun lies for me, and hopefully with the reader.
0: Well, I have to announce this. Thursday, the author of Saving Grace. On the 14th, everybody we know and love, Tim O'Mara, The Hook. On the 16th, Dick Belsky, Jim Nesbitt, Jeff Bond, Danny Petrie, and Marsha Casper-Cook. And we're going to talk about publishing and how things are changing writing. On the, twi- on the uh, 21st, I am totally honored. Jeffrey Deaver, Alan Jacobson, John Lesquois, and Heather Graham. Nothing good happens after midnight. On the 23rd, in memory of Clive Gussler, the marauder Boyd Morrison, and this um, On the 30th I'm redoing the show For inventory effects Because I owe it to the author And on January 5th No, 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 John Land Charles Salzberg Dick Belsky And Vincent Dandrew We're going to talk about 2021 And changes in the publishing industry Now, John Simon. Adrian is one of my favorite characters In your book Are you going to bring him back? For another one, because there's a lot more you could do with him. Because I think so. That's just my opinion. Uh,
2: you mean I could have done more with him?
0: No, you couldn't do it. You, no, no, you could have done. You did plenty, but you can do even more if you write another sequel <laughs> you him. Know what he's going to do in the future? No, you did a great job. Yeah,
2: yeah, um, yeah. He was. He's one of the strongest characters in the book, and and um. Uh, He lives, he lives by his ideals. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's both of the boys, um, come to have to come to grips with, with, um, their ideals, what they believe about the world and what they believe about uh, fairness. Mm -hmm. And, um, what I tried to not do in the book is to preach and to just let the boys speak for themselves. And, um, Yeah, I I would really like to do a sequel, and um, the the strike happened in two periods, you know, and this one ended in 68, but uh, there was even a, there was even a a more fiercer fight from 72 to 75, Uh, it was far more violent, and um, uh, with big implications for farm workers, so, um, yes, thank you, I, i I'm I'm really thinking about what to do with with Adrian, but there's other characters that I want to do a lot more with too.
0: That's good. And Lee, here's another mm-hmm. one of my Wyatt, and I won't say how the book ends because I went like, what? Are you kidding me? How did you do that? So if Wyatt had to live in the 21st century forever, would he be able to? Because I love. the <laughs> Oh, <laughs> like I um, I'm trying to be unique and different today. What can I say? But how how he assimilated with the girls? I mean, he had no problem with that. Um, so if he had to live in the 21st century and that's way he was, would they realize that he came from 200 years ago or whatever, 120 years ago? Would he be able to live there? Because he seemed to be doing okay. Seriously. Yeah,
3: I mean, I think what helps is the the book takes place in a fictional but a very remote town in Alaska. So it's a town that's a little bit removed from society anyway. Um, so and Alaska's populated with a lot of people who are, you know, especially in those remote areas. Like if they've come there, they've escaped sort of, you know, big cities or suburbs and they want sort of that remoteness. So you have these kind of odd duck characters that exist there anyway um so why it kind of fits in you know there's a scene where like she used the bathroom and he's in a bar and they're like it's right there and he's like wait it's an in-house you know and they look at him like he's crazy you know so there's moments but they're already drunk so the two men that he's talking to kind of just chalk it up like ah, he was a little drunk and you know like he's a little crazy um so there's nothing really sort of that you know, fully makes people aware that, that he is, except for the fact that he just has so much knowledge as the, you know, memories come back about this era, um, that really makes, I mean, the, the person closest to him, his basically great-great-grandson, um, really kind of think that he's telling the truth as much as possible. And the book kind of veers into a little bit of a science fiction um, territory in that aspect. I don't tell readers. that that it has to be taken at face value. Um, There's a lot of readers that I've had sort of pushback with the book that have never read a science fiction book before. And so they're not apt to like go there with it. So they kind of just take it that it's, you know, uh, the ravings of a madman basically. Um, But um, for the people that do, um, uh, you know, I I, I want to be able to kind of create this, this world where, you know, these two men who should never have met except in a graveyard, you know, they're 120 years apart um, in age um, and with multiple generations between them. Um, but they're able to have a beer, you know, and, and, and actually meet and form a bond um, and, and that both really start to believe that this is the case. Um, I'm, I'm, I have an idea for a sequel. Um, I'm not 100%. I probably will write it. It's just a question of when. Um, but the sequel really delve into more of the how somebody is able to be preserved on ice for 120 years, because the book doesn't really get into that. Um, so the sequel would really about be about sort of the hunt for why these men have something in them that allows them to be preserved and sort of the mystical aspect of that. Um, so I haven't figured it out 100%, but um, it's, it's, it's something in the future. Maybe next winter. It's a book that you know, it's, it's good to write in the wintertime. I'm not ready to write it in this winter, so maybe next winter.
0: I, I love that because I think everybody would like to be preserved forever.
3: Yeah, on. look look at Walt Disney. I think he's doing it right now.
0: Yeah, he did. They preserved his head or something. I don't think they preserved His head, yeah. Something, They figured that he would come back. Well, Paul Walt has been gone for like uh, 40, 40 years now. I think there are other people that have done that, too. And you know what? I'm not going anywhere. And if the less you do, you're going to put me in Nordstrom so I could, you know, model clothes or something. Yeah. I don't, I don't know anybody, else? So what can I say? So, um, John, Land, are you there? You're there. Uh, if, if Luke could speak about how he feels about Caitlyn and everybody. Luke, they don't see uh, Leroy. They don't know about him, and they don't. Know Fran, I can
1: him. barely hear you. Yeah.
0: Does, does Luke know? Does Luke and Dil, Luke and Dylan? Um, Dylan was dating this lady. older lady, and she's not right for him. Are you going to keep that in the plot? Because she's a troublemaker for Caitlin.
1: Well, you know, um, again, and this this goes back to something I, I said. Uh, I, I said before, and that is the key to a recurring series is keeping it fresh, and the way you keep it fresh is you bring in new characters. You add characters um, to your recurring list, um, and they don't always work, um, but the ones that work, you know you've got something special, and you know you have something special, when you. and how do you tell that? When they write their own dialogue, when yeah. you create a character... Who is so vividly alive that you understand them? They understand themselves better as characters than you understand them as a writer. Mm-hmm. Guillermo Paz, who I mentioned earlier, was not supposed to. The seven-foot assassin was supposed to die in strong enough to die. He wasn't supposed to survive it. Um, mm-hmm. He was supposed to be killed by Caitlin. That was the whole point of his character. Um, he was my version of Anton Chigurh, the Javier Badam character. From the movie No Country from Old Men, of course, he's also in the book. But he had ideas that were different than mine. Paz decided he was on a spiritual enlightenment tour, that he was trying to become a better man. So when they first, in their first initial in their initial gunfight, he sees something in Caitlin's eyes that makes him want to change even more. And that creates an indelible bond between them where he becomes her protector. That's not what I intended. Any more than I intended, her, her uh, Caitlin's half sister, uh, who has, mm-hmm. turns out to be a murderous assassin, to be as colorful and sexy and seductive as she is. Um, but I had never written a character like that, and and I think you know with with John and Lee, they may want to comment on. As a writer, I've done more than fifty books. And I had never written a character like Nola Delgado, never in my entire career. Um, so she was so much fun to write one of those femme, those fatal characters, someone who basically I don't even any time she's in a scene, she dominates that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, she just takes over every single scene. And I, I guess and I, I got to ask again, John and, and Lee, if they ever had this happen I I, am really attracted to Nola Delgado as it's like, I can picture her in my head and I can picture her in like a music video or something. And it's like, so it's almost like I've created a character that I have a crush on, you know, uh, it's like, she's, it's so bizarre. and, And it's not really bizarre, but it's, she, and that creates, it's interesting. It's kind of fun. As again, that's the key word for me today is fun. It creates a distance between us. Because she's the kind of woman I could never have. You know, she's, the, she's the, the the hottest girl in high school who would never talk to me. She's the college girl in at Brown for four years who might have smiled at me once at a party, and it made my month. You know, she's that kind of character. And I had never written that kind of character before. And I didn't set out to write, that, write her that way, but that's the way she became. She, again, my characters take themselves over – and tell me who they want to be. They do the yeah, work she, for me. It's kind she, of fun. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: She better not mess with Court Wesley, because I'm going to mess with her. Forget that. <laughs> <Yeah. Because I'm, laughs> yeah. Seriously, she cannot do that. But before we end, does anybody ever have a comment about what John said? Do you have a character like that? And she's really, she's horrible. But you have to love her. She's horrible.
3: But I mean, I would find when, when there's elements of, like, a villain that, that, you know, like I have in my first book, a a femme fatale character and yeah. it's totally, she just chews the scenery and she was the most fun to write because you know, she's like mm-hmm. insane but um, there's something also very attractive about that too um, and you know, going into these noir tropes, I love a good noir um, you know, you always need that sort of femme fatale that you know, kind of just mm-hmm. takes over the plot um, so yeah, I, I, I would have totally agree I've been attracted to my characters before there's no shame in that mm-hmm.
0: So how do you create, um, before we end, how do you create the ending of a book? Because what we were talking about yesterday with Vincent Dandry and Marcia Castlecook, um, sometimes you create an ending of the book, but you know there's going to be a sequel. At least I can tell there's going to be a sequel. So how do you create it uh, where you know that it's either all over or you just create an ending that people say, what? Like I did with you, Lee. I was like, are you kidding me? You did that? Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I I mean know for
3: for the ancestor,
0: that I want to read more, which is rare. Like at right. Least some of the books I'm getting have been putting me to sleep. Seriously.
3: Yeah, I mean for for the ancestor, it always had to end that way, and the book kind of spells out the ending if you actually look. The whole time it tells you what's going to happen. Um, but I've had people really upset with that ending. You know that they they wanted more of like a you know it like tied up with a nice bow. And my mantra is I never like to do that. Like, I always like my books to be a little open-ended because then when the reader puts it down, it still, like, exists in their mind a little bit. And it's true. It always leaves room open for a sequel. So, you know, kind of of, why not? But um, usually I have an ending for a book um, almost when I have the beginning. They kind of come together, Hmm. and then all the middle gets filled in (laughs) as I'm writing it. But I I usually know where I'm I'm headed um, when I start. Well, how many, um,
0: everybody tell me what is next for you, where can we find out about you, and if you need an interview or a show, just let me know, because January and February and December are completely booked, and I just booked three for um, March, but I am totally honored. I got an email last week from Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child, February 24th. They're coming online. Oh, nice. That is nice, and even greater because she doesn't do interviews ever. But she loves me, Irish Johansson, February fourth, blink of an eye. Mm. It's like, oh, she's done. With, I know what not to ask questions about the book. I know. So, Lee, where can we find out more about you, work, and then John and John?
3: Um, yes, yeah, so you can find bmatthewgoldberg um, dot com. Just everything about uh, you know my four books and books coming out. So I have a, a, a sci-fi book, my first sci-fi book, coming out in March. It's called Orange City. Um, and then 2021 is like a little break from thrillers for me. So I, I have a two-book YA series that also is coming out in 2021. Um, and it's called Runaway Train, and it's about a, a girl who runs away from home in the 1990s to be a grunge singer. So it's, it's all about sort of that era. Um, and it's been a nice escape from you know this, this wonderful year that 2020 has been to kind of go back in the 90s for a little bit. Well, I want those. Make I get them, please.
0: I got to keep. This Absolutely. Thing. And John. Well, what I'm what, working what on
2: I'm working on a sequel to *Road to Delano*, and I'm also working on a um, a fantasy historical novel that I've been noodling with for years. So, and you can find me at my website, johndesimone.com, or on uh, Amazon, and thank you for having me on, Fran. And John, where can we find you? And
0: Caitlin Strong, and forget about the other one for right
1: now. Behave. Well, next up, you asked. Uh, I'll start with next up in February. My, the fir- okay. m- my first title is since taking over uh, Margaret Truman's Capital Crime series, Murder on the Metro, February sixteenth. Okay. I think I'm coming on the day before. You're you're always the first interview. Uh, so that, and then if you want to find me, I mean, I have a website, but I don't keep it up nearly enough. Johnlandbooks.com. Follow me on Twitter at no John D Land, no H, J O N, in John D, and middle initial L A N D. Follow me on Facebook. Google me. Um, you know, go to my website. Drop me an email. Um, I get them right away. I always return them. Um, I don't get that many, so it's not that hard. Um, <laughs> and yeah, what are you gonna do? You know, uh, that's the great thing about. You know, Richard Burton used to say that if he had to come back to life. You want to do so as a novelist because you're only famous if you tell people who you are. So that's kind of fine. So that's what i got coming out.
0: Well, I'm kind of famous as a book reviewer lately, too famous lately. Um, There are so many people that have requested interviews because of this lovely fun that we're going through. I even got a couple Saturday night at 12 o'clock midnight. Could you review my book? I go, are you serious? Am I supposed to read this now? But it, it's, it's great, and thank you guys so much. This is fun, I'll tell you. Yeah, the thanks so guys, much, this, Fran. This is, thank this you, Fran. So. Um, I'm going to be doing, like I said, John's going to join Dick Belsky and Charles Salzberg and Vincent Andre on January 5th for talking about changes in the publishing industry or whatever else we come up with that day, because you never know what's going to happen. It's going to be fun. Thank you so much. It's a beautiful day outside, and hopefully... Twenty one will be a whole lot better than 2020, because I don't know why.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <And> John, <laughs> I think it will. If anybody has anything new, they want an interview, just private message me. Everybody have a great day, and bye.
3: You too, friends. Take care. Bye. bye, everybody. Bye. Good meeting you guys, bye. John.